Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 49. Creating a grazing plan of what trials and tribulations may arise through the growing season is very, very crucial. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's show, we have Levi Stump of the Green Acres Foundation. He's the livestock manager, and we're going to talk about lots of livestock species today and the regenerative practices that the Green Acres Foundation have been using for decades. But before we talk to Levi, can you do me a favor? Go to the grazinggrass.com website and sign up for our email list. Also. If you are listening to this and haven't subscribed or left us a review wherever you listen to the podcast, please do so. And last week we had 10 minutes about my farm. Actually, we didn't, but I did say 10 minutes. We had 10 seconds. Uh, I have some really exciting news that I think we will be talking about next week. Not exciting news for the podcast, but exciting news for my farm, and I'm looking forward to telling you that. But I'm waiting. It should finish up just shortly. Let's talk to Levi. Levi, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. Awesome. It's, it's great to be here. It's a great opportunity. Thank you, Levi. Levi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing there? Yeah, not a problem. You know, my name's Levi. I'm the livestock manager here at Green Acres Foundation that's located in Cincinnati, Ohio. We have a couple other properties that we've purchased over the past few years. But a little bit about myself. I did not grow up in farming whatsoever. Went to college in the hopes to go pre-vet as much, most young kids had aspirations to be. I did not grow up in a rural area. There was agriculture around me, but I was not involved in the tiniest of bits. I was playing sports year round, you know, I was living in town, this and that, but I just loved animals, wanted to go pre-vet. And I went to Wilmington College and first semester I realized that that type of schooling was not for me. Vet, vet work had a, a lot of work, a lot of years, heavily invested, a lot of knowledge, but I, I took a couple agriculture courses as an intro and just really wanted to get involved more of understanding where my food came from, which was something I've always had a knack for is just knowing where my food came from. So I, I kind of stuck with it and got a degree in agriculture with a concentration in animal science from Wilmington College. Had a five-month internship up in Dayton at Allwood Audubon, and that kind of really solidified my interest of, of caring for animals, farm animals specifically. And after that five-month internship, I was fortunate to, to find an opportunity to start out as a farmhand here at Green Acres Foundation. And that was back in May of 2017, and I've kind of just worked through the ranks, and now I'm the livestock manager here at Green Acres, and the rest is just history, and it's been a blessing so far, and I hope it continues to to bless me and, and my wife and my family and everything that we're doing here. So it's, it's great. Very good. And, you know, a lot of people head to college with one thing in mind and then end up with something else. Yeah, I, I've been there myself. So <laughs> tell us what you're doing at Green Acres. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's always always a good start to go back and look at how Green Acres started. And over 30 years ago, our founders, the late Lewis and Louise Nipper, created Green Acres as a way to give back to our community and just share the wonderful opportunities that, that we have here. They taught us to respect and conserve our natural environments through good stewardship and generative farming practices. They instilled in us the appreciation of music and fine arts and just to value our, our history. It's great. Mrs. Nipper was really into the fine arts and Mr. Nipper was really into agriculture. And together they created a great opportunity to get the best of both worlds. And through that, they established many different types of education that we, we do here. We have music education, arts education, agriculture education, environmental education, water, water quality education, just providing many opportunities for tens and thousands of students to come to Green Acres and provide an authentic field trip to, to see something that they'd never seen before. And it's it's great that we're able to do that here. And in, a, in addition to that, we are a production farm, and that's kind of where I come into play in addition to the 
the education. We have a full livestock team here. We raise just about every type of livestock animal that you can think of. We 100% grass-fed and finished beef and sheep. We raised about 4,200 meat chickens a year on pasture. We raised 500 turkeys on pasture for Thanksgiving. We raised about 34 head of hogs throughout the year. So just just about anything you can think of on a on a generative farm, we, we raise. Sounds like you have enough there to keep you busy. Year round. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, they started... The farm, I'm, I'm glancing at the website, about 70 years ago. And they were, from the beginning, very interested in regenerative practices and conservation. Yes, that, that is part of our mission here at Green Acres, is, is to preserve our land. I, I think one of, one of the quotes that we use often here is, we do not inherit the earth from our grandparents, we borrow it from our grandchildren. And that is from Chief Seattle. It's, it's one of the things that we we pride ourselves in here is that we're setting up what we do here for future generations. We, we want to leave our legacy behind and improve the land for the future and not just in the present and now. And that's what regenerative farming is about. Yeah, so very important. And I think it's wonderful you guys are getting kids out there. We need more of that exposing children to our culture. We're moving further away from it, but it, mm-hmm. it's just so important. Levi, let's talk a little bit about your livestock there. We'll start with your beef cattle. Can you tell us a little bit more about your beef cattle? Yeah, we have registered Black Angus. We have a cow-calf operation as well as a a feeder-finisher operation. We really focus on our genetics in our herd. And and looking at genetics, you think, you know, pre-industrial times before there were feedlots and stuff is how, how were animals raised? what type of genetics were there. Uh, so we look at, you know, the Y genetics, the low line genetics. Some people often refer to Aberdeen Angus. It's the the smaller breed genetics that are kind of built to be grazing grass and to, to finish on grass. I think one of the, the analogies I like to l- use, you know, for others to understand is you don't see a giraffe in Africa grazing on the ground. So why do we have, you know, 1,600 uh, 2,000 pound animals that are extremely tall that you're used to seeing in a feedlot trying to finish on grass. So having those smaller stout, we like to look at the the 60-40, you know, 40% legs, 60% body that are are meant to be grazing on grass. And and we've noticed over the years that it it, it definitely pays its dividends to to have animals like that on pasture because a you're able to finish more animals. And in the same amount of time that it would to take a, a sixteen hundred pound animal, you can have two thousand pound animals at the same time. So you're looking at stocking density, animal impact. You're able to to have more animals and finish more animals versus having larger animals that that take a little bit longer to to finish out. Yes, which is wonderful for what we're doing. Let's talk about your your cow herd first. And then we'll get back to finishing on grass because I do want to talk about that. With your cow herd, what practices are you using with them? Uh, that's a great question. We are 100% grass-fed and finished. We are rotating our animals around constantly. So when it comes to, to herbicide and pesticide use, we, we do not use any of that. We try to manage our cattle by rotating through to help break up any of those parasite cycles, fly cycles, and, and things of that nature, and provide supplemental mineral for them to kind of help compensate with that. So they're getting what they need from foraging grass, and then what they're not getting from grass, they're getting from our mineral, free choice mineral that we provide. The, the reason that we don't use herbicides and pesticides is, is looking at generative farming is, is we don't want to have those type of inputs into our herd because that's a money that we're spending on stuff like that and b you're looking at beneficial insects and soil health you're you're affecting that whole ecology so we try to find ways to mitigate that through rotational grazing and that's that's how we we maintain all of that and how often are you moving your cows all of our all of our herds for the most part are are moved on a daily basis from from one section to the next so we are Typically a, a 24-hour paddock rotation from one to the next, depending on the time of year, you know, or if we have a cow-calf herd that has a lot of young calves on the ground, we try not to move them as often. 
when I say as often, it's from one day to, to three to four days because we're also looking at grass and soil. And if, if you leave cattle in, in the same area longer than four days, when that grass starts to regrow, they become what I like to call mosaic grazers. They, they like to pick and choose versus moving them through A, to, to get the impact, to get the manure distribution. And we're not allowing them to be selective grazers because at that point, when they become selective grazers, they're going to eat the quality stuff. And when you do that repeatedly, what happens, and I'm sure you know of grazing your own animals, is that the less desirable forages then decide to take over. So it's a constant battle of the, the give and take of, of impact and how, how to move animals through pasture to ensure that you're leaving quality forages to compete, but you're also dampening the weed pressure and less desirable forages. So it's, you know, there's a million ways to do the same thing. And I know a lot of farmers, you know, I, I've heard the leave a third, eat a third, trample a third. I've heard eat half, leave half. So there, there's many ways to do it, but it, it really ultimately, the deciding factor is how your operation works and what fits your system and, and how you're managing. And that's kind of what we base a lot of our work around here. When you said multiple herds, are you grazing your grass are your yearlings with your cow herd? No, we have a our cow-calf operation. So we have a fall and spring calving group, both separate. We leave our calves on for seven to eight months, or our window is more six to eight months, and we'll wean. And then we have a, a, a separate herd. After we wean, they become our, our feeder finisher herd. So we, have, we keep them separate. We have a cow-calf and a, a feeder finisher herd. And one thing you mentioned there that was unexpected to me, you have a Fall calving herd as well? That is correct. Yeah. A lot of people go go back and forth on, you know, what, what is the right time to, to have animals, spring or fall? And I've heard many different people say many different things. You know, this is the reason why they have a fall calving group. This is the reason why we have a spring calving group. You know, one, one of the things I think it's Jim Garrish is he, he looks at, you know, what animals do in nature. And look at deer and, and buffalo and bison. A lot of them are, are fall calving. And it seems to work out, out pretty well for them. And, you know, we, we've had a fall and spring calving group for the past couple of years. And we haven't really seen much of a difference of which one is better and which, which one's worse. And I, I think a lot of that boils down to management too and what type of forages you have and the time of year that you see calves hitting the ground. But one of the reasons that we tend to have a fall and calving season group is... It gives us a little bit more variability throughout the year to have fin animals finished on grass. So we're, we're widening the opportunity to, to finish animals throughout the year and not kind of just focus on a, a certain time of the year. And we're also building our herd as well. So w this herd we've had here for about five years now, and we're looking at genetics and those animals that, that we have. We got some really great heifers that we kept this, this past year for the first time that were first-time heifers had some great calves, looking at their genetics, docility, performance in a fescue-dominant pasture, because we're in the fescue bell, if I failed to mention that already, how well their weaning weights are, their birth weights. So we, we look at all of those, and they're all deciding factors on whether we keep animals and or keep them for market. And, you know, when you're growing and have a feeder finisher herd and a cow-calf herd, I, I always joke about it. It's difficult, you know, to try to finish animals in a, you know, a 24 month period and having an operation of a cow calf and feeder finisher because the, the best growing ones, the best steers or the best bulls and the best heifers are growing great. But those are animals that you want to keep back to keep in the herd. So you keep that genetic line going. So we're, we're in those growing pains, if you will, of having those animals, of creating that environment. Eventually, once, once we get that herd set, you know, it's, we're going to have the best of both worlds of being able to finish out animals in that, you know, 18 to 22 months on grass fed and finished operation and also be able to keep back the best heifers and bulls to, to continue that genetic line. Yeah, and that all makes sense, you know, with the discussion fall versus spring. That's a discussion my dad and I have all the time. His herd is fall calving and my herd spring calving. You're a little bit north of us, but you're still within that fescue belt. Do you do any cool season annuals or anything to extend your grazing season? 
Oh, absolutely. We we plan cool season annuals in addition to warm season annuals to get through that summer slump. Being in the fescue belt, you know, we're in an area that we have, you know, an infected fescue that can be very less palatable for our cattle and, and cause fescue toxicity. So we try to mitigate that by planting warm season annuals and that, that works out really well for us. But in the spring and fall, we, we definitely plant, you know, annual rye. We, we broadcast some, some clovers in the wintertime with some frost seeding and working with our, our research team, we're always finding ways to, to be better, to provide quality forages for our, our cattle and all of our, our enterprises in addition to creating quality soil to establish good perennials that's not just fescue. We're looking at establishing perennial rye, timothy, orchard grass. We've been investigating the the past year or so of trying to plant novel fescue to compete with our our endophyte infected fescue to help improve our pastures that way that that it's better for our animals because you know I, you read online, you read many articles talking about fescue. It's it's a great forage, but at the same time, it loses billions of dollars in in the beef industry, mostly due to it, its vasoconstricting abilities of of fescue toxicity and average daily gains and getting cattle ready to to be finished on on grass. It, it hinders the process, and we're we're always investigating ways to to hinder that and to to mitigate that and be able to finish animals on a, in a fescue belt in 22 months or so. So is your target date for finishing 22 to 24 months or about that range? That's about that range. Exactly. I, I, I think last time I looked the the national average is, is, you know, 28 plus on a grass fed and finished operation. You know, the past two years, was it 2020, 2021, our, our average age going to market was anywhere from 24 and a half to 25 months. And we had some, some really good animals going that year. And, and we take those numbers and each year look at how can we improve that. And the best way to improve that is A, looking at genetics and then B, looking at pasture management. So we're, we're always focusing on those two because it, they, work, they work together. You can't have one and not the other. You can have the best genetics in the world, but if you're not grazing quality forages or looking at soil health, you're not going to get anywhere and then vice versa. So we're, we're fortunate here. We have, we have a great crew on the livestock team and we have a great work research team that work in tandem of looking at soil health and looking at our forages and always continue to ask of how we can do better. Because if you're not asking that question, you're only going to be mediocre. So what are your, some of your your goals or things you're trying to do to improve it? A lot of the things when it comes to pastures is we're looking at getting more perennial forages established. Cool season forages, just to explain, we're looking at getting, you know, some more Timothy, novel fescue, orchard grass. And then another thing that we're doing of looking at improving soil health in our forages is one of the questions that's asked a lot is, is talking about drought and how people plan for that. And here, we're fortunate in in Ohio where we're at that that's not too much of a problem, but it is slowly but surely starting to move this this way. So we're looking at getting native warm season grasses established. And that's where our our research team really comes into play. We've done some studies with um, University of Tennessee of getting 10 acres at one of our other farms established in native warm season grasses. And that's been going on for about three years now, and we've been seeing some really good results. So now we're focusing on some of our pastures at our other farms that are a little bit in poor health that could use some work. And those seem to be the the best areas of focus to get native warm seasons established. So we got about 20 acres almost here at our Indian Hill location in Cincinnati that we're looking to to revamp and get native warm season established like uh, big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian grass. I think that that's a great start for us of being drought tolerant and also to be able to get through that summer slump to, to continue to have quality forages for a grass fed and finished operation. Oh, yes. Including habitat. And that's, that's one of the, the big reasons too, is it, 
talking about, you know, back in the day, the, the buffalo grazing the prairies and the habitat and how that was maintained. So we're, we're taking all of that in stride with, with the work that we're doing. It's not just for the animals that we raise and maintain ourselves, but it's also looking at the environment, the ecology, and the habitat that surrounds to make sure that all of that's working in tandem. And that's, that's one of the big focuses of, of generative farming. Yes. When you think about your grass finished versus your cow-calf, what are some management practices you're doing different in those two cases? A lot of the times, our cow-calf operation is, we, we got a pretty solid herd, and their nutritional requirements are a little bit different than a, a growing animal that we're trying to take to market. So we've, we've kind of dabbled with, with different scenarios and how we manage our cattle. We've Jim Garish visited our farm back in 2019, and one of the things that we trialed was a leader follow. And we led with our feeder finisher herd because, you know, the feeder finisher herd, you know, you want to take the, the top two inches. That's where the most nutrition is in those forages. So we, we hit that and then moved on. And then right behind, we followed with our cow-calf group as our, what we like to call our maintenance group. So their, their requirements weren't as strong as the the feeder finisher. So we were able to get the best of both worlds of having quality forages for our feeder finisher to have, you know, two to three pound ADG and then come through with our, our cow calf to still get the, the second, third bite that's still nutritious, just not as quality as the first bite to, to meet their demand of milk production and, you know, just maintaining their weight, whether they had a calf on them or not. That seemed to work out pretty well for us especially in the springtime to stay on top of the spring flush is the spring flush around here is, you know, one day you don't have grass and the next, next day you have more than you can handle. So trying to, to find ways to, to handle that. And that's, that's one of the things that we've done in the past and that seemed to work out really well for us. Another question I have for you on your grass finished beef, are you finishing just the steers and heifers you're not keeping for your herd or an and are you finishing all of them, or do you have a preference? That is correct. As of right now, all the steers that we have for sure are going to market. As far as our heifers, that's something that, you know, as, as our herd grows, we're looking into their genetics more, and it is, are those genetics that we want to keep? And if they're not, we, we keep them in our feeder finisher herd because we're also looking at, if we look at selling heifers, if we weren't going to keep them, why would we want to sell them to others? Because we, we want to ensure that we're providing other heifers, other cows that we have to other farms if we provide to sell a, a market and a quality animal for them as well. You know, I, we've, we've been fortunate from the farms that we've worked with in the past of getting quality genetics and animals. And we've weeded through that with, you know, looking at birthing weights, weaning weights, how well they performed with a calf and without a calf. And if those are, if they don't meet those requirements for us, they're going to go into our, our feeder market versus our, our heifer market or a cow market to sell our genetics to other, other farms. Yeah. That, that makes great sense to me. Perfect yeah. sense. And in, in addition to that, one of, one of the things that we're looking at more is the low line genetics i think you're familiar with like with aberdeen the, the the smaller style so we've we actually in the past done some embryo transfer work and we got six bulls the lodge of wise he's he's a well-known bull back in the day and along with copeland of Y, which are low-line angus genetics we got those animals this past december and we got six bulls and one heifer and obviously the the heifer stayed in our program and we, we have six bulls. We intend to keep one or two of them a, as they grow to see how they perform. But with those genetics, we're also looking at getting them sold. And that's something we're working with our marketing team is to, to sell those, those bulls to other farms that are interested in generative farming and a grass-fed and finished operation of the smaller genetics, but have, have that prime, have that marbling quality weights that, that you want to see in a grass-fed and finished operation. Yes, very good. And moving on, do you run your sheep with your cattle or are they managed separately? I, I love that you asked that question. That is something that we've been working on and talking about for the past several years now. 
And in this past year, we purchased in 50 more ULAMs. And just about two months ago, we integrated and created our first FLIRD. And we, we are excited about, you know, the trials and tribulations that may arise from that. But all the studies and work that we've done leading towards has been good. And it was at the point is, why haven't we tried it yet? So we, we finally got the sheep integrated with, with one of our cow-calf groups. We kept them separate for a while just as a, a training process to get them used to polywire lines, getting them trained to us. We, we like to use alfalfa pellets to, to train them to get them to move. And once we got that established and got them to start moving, we integrated them with our FLIRD. And it, so far, it's been great. You know, one of the things I, I've read and heard from many people is you can have one U per cow and it not affect your grazing plan. And so far, I, I can say that we are, we are seeing that our, our rotations have not changed. Our cattle seem to, to be grazing a little bit differently than the sheep. And then also you look at the benefits of having a flirt together is the symbiotic relationship of the parasite loads. You know, they, they say parasites that are detrimental to cattle die in the rumen of a sheep and vice versa. So, so we're hoping to create those type of relationships with our flirts and that will also help mitigate you know, having to use dewormers or, or worry about parasite loads because they're working together to break up that cycle. Because our goal with our animals is to intervene as, as least possible. Because if we're, if we're having to intervene and worm or maintain and, and care for animals in, this, in that sense, you're losing money, you're, you're losing gains. And overall, it's, it's just not good for yourself or that flirt. So we, we take all of that in in stride of what we're doing to make sure that we're making the right practice decisions. And with your FLIRD, are you running some livestock guardian animals with them as well? We are not. That is, you know, that is something that we have been asked a lot about in the past. And one of the things about two years ago, we were raising turkeys on pasture. And in one night, we we had a, some coyote pressure and lost a good chunk of, of our turkeys due to that, that coyote pressure. And at that time, we had two bulls that weren't in with our cow-calf herd for, for breeding or anything. So the question was, is, is there such thing as a guardian bull? So <laughs> we, we put them in, and after we put them in, we had zero issues with, with any of that type of pressure. So we're Thinking with, with their size and just their presence in the pasture, it kind of eliminates any concern of our sheep or our poultry or anything to be susceptible to that type of, of pressure. I have the luxury of, of, of living on site and getting to see some of this stuff firsthand. And in this past winter, we had about 18 ewes in, in their lambs with one of our bulls overwintering in a pasture right next to my house. And one evening I was looking out my window and I saw two coyotes standing in the pasture in which the sheep were in. So as always, I, I put on my muck boots and ran out in the field thinking that I was going to be able to do something. And by the time I got out there, every single one of the sheep was standing behind the bull and that bull was standing up looking in the direction at the coyotes were. And that just goes to show the relationship that those animals have with each other and that if you just give them the opportunity, it, it flourishes on its own. And it's, it's amazing to, to see that happen from not wanting to interact with each other to relying on each other for safety. And it's, it's amazing to see those opportunities and, and things just happen. Do you notice those animals hanging out together or are they just in the same area? And due to the, the closeness of the bull, they're going over for that protection. As of right now with our FLIRD, it's such a, a young relationship so far that when they're grazing, they're, they're intermixed. But when it comes to, to laying down and, and settling down for the night, they're separate. But in the past, when we integrated our, all of our weathers with our, our bulls, if you, you visit our Instagram page, we, our ram is with our bulls and there, there are photos of them just laying down with each other, legs sprawled out all over each other, just, just chilling and having a good time. So it's a little bit of both, but we've, we've seen a lot more co-mingling over the past two months with the, the newly established flirt. 
the, you just got to give it time. And the, the more time they become more comfortable with each other. And, and so far that's, that's definitely shown. Very interesting. I remember reading an research article where they bonded weaned ewe lambs with open heifers or, and they, they were talking about certain amount of time with them before those heifers were 18 months old. And those lambs were newly weaned, and they would bond and stay together. And when they put them with the the flock, you know, the flock kind of moves by consensus, and that leader you, and for them to stay with the cattle most of the time, they had to have a majority of the sheep had to have been bonded with those cattle, which was very interesting. And I did try one year doing something like that, but... I didn't have great success, but that's probably more on me than what everyone else does. However, since then, I don't run my cattle and sheep together. My sheep kind of have their mind of their own. But one hindrance I have to that are my livestock guardian dogs. Because they, they tolerate the cows, but they're not real big fans of them. Which I'm, I'm hoping that gets better over time, but that's just the issue I've had. Yeah. And the, one of the reasons that we, we haven't considered and looked more into the guardian dogs is just because we're also an educational farm and bringing in tens and thousands of students, you know, we, we are concerned of, you know, the, what the role of a guardian dog is. So we, we try to utilize all of our enterprises working together to, to help mitigate those, those type of predation issues. And, and so far it's worked out pretty well for us. Very good. Very good. You also grass finish your lambs. At what age do you finish them? Our um, sheep operation is, is on the rise. You know, the, the past couple of years, we, we bought in some feeder lambs to finish out. But this year, and well, in the past few years, we, we bought 10 Katahdin ewes. And then this past year, we bought in 50, just a commercial flock of a cross between Katahdin and Dorper with a little bit of Romanov and Polypay. We really like the hair type sheep, especially in our type of operation. That means no shearing. They shed out on their own. So that's, that's less work for the livestock team to worry about. And as we continue to grow, you know, we went from 10 sheep to, to 60 rather quickly. And then, you know, sheep have a tendency to have twins. So if we're looking at that, we're also increasing next year another 160% from 10 to 50 to potentially 150, we want to try to look at how we can improve efficiencies and, and not spend too much time and effort and work. So looking at the hair type sheep has really helped. And there's also a lot of studies out there that say hair type sheep are somehow a little bit more, not, not as susceptible to, to parasite loads and perform better in a grass-fed and finished operation. So, so those are things that we account for when, when we're growing our operation. But our goal is to have our, our sheep go to market around eight to 10 months. So, you know, we like to keep them as, as lambs. And right now we, we have a pretty good market. We're nowhere where we need to be in our, our sheep market. You know, we got people all the time asking, you know, when we're going to have lamb available. And that's one of the reasons why we're really increasing our, our lamb operation or sheep operation. But our, our goal is to have animals, our, our sheep ready eight to 10 months around Easter time to take to market. We, we have a pretty big market for, for Easter lamb. So you're lambing those in midsummer? More like, you know, about mid-spring where we are expected our, our first lamb end of April, early May. Oh, okay. That'll, that'll put us around, you know, the eight to 10 under, under 12 months. Oh yes. And you got to allow some time for processing and stuff. Yes. So that, that, those are all things that, that we, we account for. And we, we found it better to be lambing kind of late spring when forages are booming versus, you know, about midsummer, especially in the fescue belt, when you're, you're looking at fescue toxicity and making sure that we're meeting nutritional demands for, for our animals to improve average daily gains and to make sure that they're, they're keeping their condition and having quality milk for the lambs to grow. Very good. Very good, Levi. We talked about kind of the, you might even say the big two when we talk about regenerative ag, cattle and, and sheep. 
you all have a few more species there. Let's go through those just a little bit and find out what you're doing and how you're doing that. And we can start with those pasture poultry. Awesome. Yeah. We raise about 4,200 meat birds, primarily Cornish cross, which is the most common meat bird that, that you'll get, whether it's from your local producer or, or you know, going to, to Kroger or Meyer or whatever other big, big store chain you have in your area. One of the things that we do with our, our meat birds is, is raise them on pasture. The first three to four weeks, I should say, they, they are raised indoors in a brooding system just to ensure they're feathering out nice, they're meeting their, their heat requirements, feed requirements before we move them out on pasture. And then week four, week three, week four, we move them out on the pasture and then they're out on pasture the remainder of, of their span on, on the farm. And the way that we manage that is we have some awesome fabricators on hand. I always like to say, if you dream it, they can build it. And so far that's been true. During COVID, we, we had a lot of concern of meat shortages and, and the quickest turnaround in meat protein was to increase broiler production. So we went from raising 1,800 meat birds to 4,200 overnight. And the way that we were able to do that is having our staff on hand, the livestock team, in addition to our, our estate crew and their fabricators, uh, uh, building our chicken tractors that we can utilize in our pasture to, to maintain the amount of animals that we had. Our, our chicken tractors are about 11 and a half by 18 feet, so we can raise about 100, 125 broilers per tractor pretty comfortably, and we move them each day to a fresh patch of of forage. So in addition to foraging on pasture, we do supplement with grain just to make sure that they're meeting their nutritional requirements and getting good gains before they go to market. Um, and it, it's a little bit more work and more tedious being out in pasture because there's more moving parts when you look at water, feed, moving the equipment. But overall, it's it's better for, for us workers and not having to be in a building that is is enclosed worrying about ventilation ammonia buildup or or any of those those nasty airborne illnesses and d diseases that that can happen from an enclosed building and then it's also great for the birds because out on pasture we're allowing our birds to be birds move around forage eat bugs scratch through the soils the the grasses eat fresh clover and it, it's just overall better for them and it's also great for pasture because then they're applying their nitrogen dense manure straight into our pasture for us so it's it's a win-win all around for us and it, it's a great enterprise to see it all all work in tandem of, of having multi-species grazing you know multi-species grazing isn't just sheep and cattle you know you you put in the poultry and all their benefits into that pasture and how all of that creates quality soil health and that promotes better forages and all around better quality of life for the ecology and the animals that you're raising. I was looking through your Instagram feed. I was hoping to see your chicken tractor. I don't see one there. And it and I was doing it kind of quickly, so I may have just missed it. Mm -hmm. But you are able to move that by hand each day. The the ones that we have are, we do not move by hand. We, we do have gators and a type of UTV to move them. But we are, are fortunate of the way that we raise them it is... Other farms can do exactly the same thing as far as moving animals around. Uh, John Suskovich has a great chicken tractor plan to be able to move by hand. Joel Salatin's chicken tractor plan, great to move by hand. It's, it's cool to, to see other farms and how they adapt to essentially do the exact same thing that we do and or we're doing the exact same thing that they're doing just a little bit different so it, it's cool that everything that we are doing here can be done at scale whether it's large or small and are able to adapt to fit everybody else's systems and that's that's really the biggest goal that we're trying to to promote is yeah we may be able to do things differently and have more equipment to do things but it can be done and that's that's where we're here to help educate how they can be done and show that it can be done. So that's, that's just one of the cool things, especially in farming. It's just, there's so many different ways to, to do the same thing. And that's improving soil and improving your forages, improving the ecology and improving everything. And it, it doesn't matter if you have 
equipment or just your hands, it can still be done. So true with that. As we, we experienced on the different episodes of this podcast, people are using those same underlying practices and theories, but they're doing it in their own way, which is so wonderful to highlight and see how everyone's doing it. Turkeys. You all also do turkeys. Tell us just a little bit about your turkey operation. We do. Our, our turkeys are also pasture-raised turkeys. Same as our meat chickens, we raise them the first few weeks in a brooder just to make sure they're meeting their nutritional demands, heat demands, and requirements, and feather out nicely to, to be able to handle the environment of being out on pasture. Turkeys are a lot more finicky than, than meat birds or really any of our, our pasture-raised animals. Turkeys are a unique breed, especially in a, in a pasture-raised setting. But we raise our turkeys for, for Thanksgiving. That, that is our market. We uh, get our turkeys the first week of August in their own property for 16 to 17 weeks before they're finished out. We, we raise them indoors for the first couple weeks of their life. And then, then we move them into those chicken tractors that I was talking about briefly before for another couple of weeks just to help make sure that they're growing well and protected by any aerial predators or ground predators at their enclosure. And after, you know, they, they gain a little bit of weight or pretty good size, they're less susceptible to that aerial predation. And that's when we release them onto pasture and we utilize uh, Premier One fencing, the uh, poultry, poultry netting, and it works out pretty well for us. We, we give them, they have about 20,000 square feet of area to roam at all times, but about every day to day and a half, we give them access to a fresh 10,000 square foot. So we're constantly moving them through through our pastures to, to have their impact and also provide quality forages through them as we're moving through pastures. And that again is where we utilize our, our guardian bulls out okay. in pasture to help mitigate any of that ground ground pressure that you may see. And, and up here where we're at, most of our, our ground predation we see is, is actually more through raccoons than it is coyotes or fox. So we've been working out ways to, to work around that. And then our aerial predation is where we're at. We got a pretty heavy raptor population, a lot of red tail hawks, red shoulder hawks, Cooper's hawks, and then nighttime most, we got quite a few great horned owls around here that at times can pick off one of our turkeys here and there for, for a late night snack. But we've been fortunate with our, our rotation and, and waiting till they're an appropriate size to help mitigate that to, to really, for, for the most part, eliminate any of that aerial predation. What weight are you finishing your turkeys at? Oh man, that is a, that is a wonderful question. Our, our biggest goal, it seems like our, our consumers and myself is at 18 to 20 pound range. It's kind of the perfect size for a roasting turkey to fit in the oven or to a deep fry or smoke. If you get too much bigger than that, it, it, it gets a little bit, bit tricky because a lot of leftovers, but I, I would say <laughs> our, our range, our range for sure is about the 18 to 20 pound in we do a straight run, so we, we get a combination of, of hen and jakes. So our our weights always depend because, you know, you know hens grow a little bit slower than, than the males do. But one of the ways that we, we try to make sure that we're in line with how we're feeding our, our birds is we periodically will just randomly grab 15 to 20 turkeys, weigh them, and kind of take the average of that to kind of see where we're at and, and do we need to provide more feed? Do we need to lessen feed to make sure that we're getting the weights that we're, we're shooting for going into to Thanksgiving time? Yes. And what breed or variety are you using for your turkey? Last year, we switched and went to broad-breasted bronze. In, in, in past years, we've done broad-breasted white. It's been, it's pretty common. It's kind of what we've always done. In the past, we used to raise about 400 turkeys, about 300 broad-breasted white and 100 broad-breasted bronze. And anecdotally, through the growing season, it was, it always seemed that the broad-breasted bronze were more hardy. They filled out better. They looked better. They weren't as susceptible to, to predation or any type of ailments. And I, I think, I believe it was 2020, 2019, 2020, we had our, our, an outbreak of erysipelas, which really affects a, a turkey flock. And, and we saw that hit 
our broad-breasted whites pretty hard. So the next year we trialed and, and just did a couple more broad-breasted bronze. And granted, we did a lot less, but every single one of those broad-breasted bronze that we had went to market. And uh, a, a good chunk of the broad-breasted white that we had, we we had we saw some mortality and, and saw some more erysipelas happen. So at the end of that year, the team kind of sat down and, and talked through everything. And it, it seemed we were all on the same page that, you know, next year we're going to try broad-breasted bronze. So we trialed that. Not only did we trial that, but we also increased from 400 turkeys to 525. And it was hands down the best season that we had for a turkey season and had over 500 turkeys go to the processor and had some quality weights. So our anecdotal evidence was right on path with just stating that the broad-breasted bronze were more hardy and fit for a, a pasture race setting. So moving forward, that is, that is the, the breed that we're working with. And one, one of the, the downfalls of raising broad-breasted bronze is you know, they're bronze, so their pin feathers are a little bit darker. And when you take them to the processor, not every one of those pin feathers is removed. So where a, a broad-breasted white, they got the white pin feathers, so they're not as visible when you're, you're processing or prepping your turkey for Thanksgiving. So that's, that's one of the, the cool things of being an educational farm, too, is educating our consumers of, of understanding why there's black pin feathers and where they came from and just educating them that it, it's the breed of animal, but the, the quality of animal and the turkey that you're eating is no different than what it, if it was a broad-breasted white. Very good, very good. Let's talk real quickly about pigs. I think you all do pigs. Just tell us a little bit about how that looks on your all's farm. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's another enterprise that has been growing over the past few years. When I when I first started here a little over five years ago, we were raising about 14 head throughout the year. And one of being an educational farm and working with research is we were putting them in, in wooded areas. And where we're at, is we have a lot of invasive honeysuckle. So one of the questions was, were pigs able to kind of disrupt and, and root up that immature honeysuckle to, to set it back? The answer is yes, that they were, especially the immature stuff, but the, the mature honeysuckle was still there. So it, it essentially, they opened up the canopy a little bit, but then we had to go in mechanically and remove that mature honeysuckle to kind of open up the canopy floor. So taking that information and putting it in, in, you know, dense areas that, you know, cattle or sheep aren't going to be all that great or excel at is putting them in to help disrupt that soil, open up that canopy. And then we go in remove multi-floor rows, honeysuckle, or any other invasives, and then be able to broadcast or plant cool season forages and essentially create a, a silvopasture in areas that were pretty dense before. That's kind of been our approach now is looking at our pastures, uh, where we have woody, woody areas in our pastures that we don't get quality impact from our sheep or cattle is putting pigs in those areas to help disrupt that area and, and see what happens after that and then to be able to go through and, and clean up any multi-floor rows or bramble or anything like around the trees to help open that canopy up more to create quality forages to, to establish in those areas. And that's been an ongoing process for the past going on two years now. So we're, we're still in the trialing process, but Right now, we're seeing some of the results that we were hoping to see, and hopefully we can continue moving forward with that and utilize them in, in, in ways that we can't utilize sheep and cattle. Sounds like a great utilization of, of pigs and their natural abilities. And I know that was just really quick on pigs. I'm looking at the time, and I'm always concerned and not wanting the episode to go too long. So we're going to wrap up and move to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Levi, what is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? I, you know, have been listening to your podcast and hear that all the time, and I could talk about so many. <laughs> uh, but a few of the ones that I, I'd like to hit are definitely, I, I believe, I think one of the recent podcasts you had with a gentleman named Callahan uh, was talking about the, the Talking Cow podcast. 
I love listening to that one. That's just a, a good filler podcast to be listening to when you're out in the field doing this and that. Oh, yes. Uh, but when it comes to to book resources, I, I have several to name. They're, they're right here to my right. I think that they're just quality resources, especially in, in regenerative farming and, and or just like starting your, your own homestead or getting started. And I'll just go through that list and, you know, Kick the Hay Habit by Jim Garrish is a is a good read of understanding pasture management and how, how to help be able to mitigate feeding hay in the wintertime. Gabe Brown, who's big in the regenerative farming realm, uh, Dirt to Soil, the, it's a great book. Another one, is it from is it Alan Williams, Before You Have a Cow? That was one of the first books I read when I got into farming. Sarah Flack has a book called The Art and Science of Grazing. When I really first got interested and intrigued in rotational grazing and grazing animals, that was the first book purchase that I had. And it's been great. And she also has a, quite a few videos and resources on YouTube. The The Temple Grandin Guide to Working with Farm Animals to kind of understand how animals work. I, I would say animal psychology is my most favorite part about farming. So Temple Grandin is, is a big resource for me and somebody I admire uh, greatly when it comes to, to working animals. With that being said, uh, one of the things I failed to mention is, is Temple Grandin visited Green Acres back in 2016. We actually have a cattle handling facility that was built with her being around and, and her guidance and Mark Deesing creating the blueprints of just using cattle's natural instincts to, to move around. So it, it's it's cool to have a, a state-of-the-art facility like that designed with input from Temple Grandin. And it, it's it's named after her, the, the Temple Grandin Handling Facility here at Green Acres, and it's very cool. And then the, the last one, looking more into grass-fed and finished beef, which I think is another one that Callahan talked about in his, your last podcast that I heard was grass-fed cattle. Is it from Julius? Rochelle, sorry if I butchered that name, but it, that's more of like a book to flip through for for guidance and and just to, to take notes and always to to refer to. And then, of course, Joel Salatin has has many books and and resources out there to look at. So many, so many to choose from. There is, and and the ones you listed are excellent resources. The thing that jumped out to me was Temple Grandin, and I actually had on my notes for the episode asking about your Temple Grandin facilities and see if she designed them because I saw they were named after her, which is, I think, just so exciting. But I also think that may be the first time we've we've had her name come up on the podcast, which is interesting. It's very surprising. Yeah, but, but a lot of times people are focused more on the grass portion of it rather than the handling of livestock, but that low-stress... Mm -hmm handling book. I can't even think of the, the full title of it. I love and just, it, it's made a tremendous impact on the way I'm around my cattle. And now I get everybody else to go up to the barn, leave me alone. I'll take care of this. But, you know, I think that's an excellent resource as well as those others you listed. Absolutely. Secondly, what tool could you not live without? I got two and one of them is pretty cliche with where I'm at in having stacked enterprises and how we do things here of, you know, education and so many different departments working together is, is having a team. Uh, there, there's no way that I could do what I'm doing without the support of the team behind me of being out in the field every day, you know, working together. You know, farming is not easy. It's difficult. It, it can be time consuming. It, it can be frustrating, upsetting, tedious, meticulous, but you got to be able to find the joy in it. And having a team that wants to be here, that enjoys learning, that promotes growth, promotes opportunity, and being able to feed off of each other's energy, which one person's strength is another person's weakness. There, There's no way that Green Acres and the livestock team would be where it's at with having, without having that type of relationship. And then from a farming aspect, you know, some people don't think of it as a tool, but it, it's, it's the eyeballs right here, being out in the field and making observations and observing things. It, the, I think two eyes out in the field every day is probably the most important tool that you can have in your toolbox. Yeah, making those observations and reflecting on them, I think that's a great select or great choice there. The team aspect is, is one that, 
like, well, for myself, I guess I could say I, I have a team in that my dad and I do this very closely together. And then I get to talk to all the wonderful people on the podcast. But a lot of people don't have that. Maybe they have a mentor, which is really important to get into if you're getting started. Someone who's been there to tell you. But that's one of the reasons I started the Grazing Grass community, trying to establish that as a way we have some like-minded people out there that we can talk to and gain feedback from. I think you're extremely lucky there, Levi, with that team you have and the amazing resources you have. Absolutely. When you were getting started, what do you wish you knew? Or what would you tell someone that was just getting started? That is a, a fantastic question. And I, I ask myself that quite often. And I, w- I would say for my myself is understanding the importance of time management. Time management is extremely important and and crucial to any operation, you know, and it, it doesn't have to just be with farming. It could be with your, your day-to-day job or your home life, or it, it qualifies for every, every part of your life. And I found that to be, be very crucial. And then for the day-to-day stuff with, with farming is, is having a game plan, creating a grazing plan of, you know, what trials and tribulations may arise through the growing season, what variables can dictate whether you're going to move animals in this field or next. So always thinking about the next step ahead and having a game plan, I I think is, is very, very crucial. Excellent advice. I just recently had a conversation with a coworker at my off the farm job, and she was talking about the things she was doing to prepare for advancement. And I gave her some suggestions of some resources, and none of them were related to the field directly, but it's more about productivity, time management, making sure you're, you know, that true north, and then some other things. But I think that time is so important because with farming, you could fill up 24-7, 365, but you've got to have some balance there. Yeah, Yeah. And, and just being able to think those things through and you know what is what i'm worried about today can it wait till tomorrow and if the answer is yes and enjoy the rest of your evening because that work's going to be there tomorrow (laughs) as long as the animals are happy and healthy you you also you also got to be happy and healthy and if you're working yourself to the bone it it can be very taxating on yourself mentally and physically so it's very important to not only worry about your animals, but worry about yourself. And a lot of that boils down to time management. Yes. I'm going to add one thing on there, Levi, and whoever else is in your household. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And lastly, Levi, where can others find out more about Green Acres and you? Oh, that's uh, great. We have a website, Green Acres Foundation. If you just Google Green Acres, it's one of the first things that pops up. We also have a YouTube page that is slowly growing that has quite a few videos that that show the diversity and opportunities that Green Acres has here from gardening to livestock to all the types of education. And then we also have an Instagram and Facebook page that you guys can check out. Very good. And we'll put those links in our show notes for everyone to access. Levi, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. Thank you. I think it's been a very valuable episode and our listeners will really enjoy it. Awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. It was great. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post. Are you a grass farmer? Would you like to share on the podcast about your journey and what you're doing on your farm? Go to grazinggrass.com and click on the Be Our Guest link. We are looking for grass farmers. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. 
Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.